reading can expand your mind and change your entire worldview. But sometimes, you just want to relax and lose yourself in something that just plain knows how to have fun. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author John Scalzi. His latest novel, The Kaiju Preservation Society, is out now from Tor Books. John and I discuss the difficulty of writing during lockdown, the historical context for kaiju films, and the value of books as entertainment. And now, enough from me. On to the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, John. It's so great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. And so the way I kind of traditionally like to start these off is just asking you, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction? I can't because I've been uh, in science fiction for so long as a fan and as a participant that it just literally, I can't think of when it started. The closest I can come, quite honestly, is being eight years old and then going to see Star Wars in the movie theaters, right? And I remember because it was when it first came out and all my friends had seen it and I hadn't seen it yet. So I went and saw it, I think pretty much by myself. And, you know, the opening crawl comes and then the, you know, spaceship zooms by and I'm like, wow, that is cool. Look at that spaceship. It looks so realistic. And then here comes the Imperial cruiser, right? This big triangle. And it just keeps coming it doesn't stop for like 20 seconds and i was like <gasps> and that's when i became a man <laughs> i became a man that day yeah i i love that I, I kind of regret that i didn't get to see star wars as it was coming out because i never quite got that moment <laughs> well that's the problem isn't it it's with anybody who like is i mean i'm 52 so i'm old enough to have seen the original in the movie theater but everybody who came afterwards you know, it just became so much of common culture that there were no Star Wars surprises. Or the people who I remember seeing The Matrix for the first time and the bullet time was amazing. Now it's just a trope. But at the time, you're like, <laughs> yeah. wow, they can do that? That's amazing. So this is this is the you know downside to science fiction and fantasy taking over the world. On one hand, it's great, you know, certainly great for me as a science fiction writer. Uh, but on the other hand, it just means that sooner or later, everything becomes sort of tropey shorthands and a lot of the original magic is lost. The good news is we still have new science fiction and fantasy coming out. So everybody, one way or another, will be able to have that experience just with different media and different stories. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so cool these days that a lot of people, they're like, wow, Star Wars moment. It's all something different. It's not that yes. you have like an entire generation that can all point to the same 20 seconds and be like, man, that just sold me. Right. Now, I remember when the prequels uh, started coming out and then <laughs> 10 or 15 years later, there were all these young adults uh, you know, in their 20s or 30s who were like, remember the Dolph Maul, you know, lightsaber battle? That was the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. What are you talking about? 
We don't talk about the prequels, but they do talk about the prequels because that's their Star Wars. And I suspect 10 or 15 years from now, um, there will be the sequel trilogy uh, fans who will be start being like, no, that scene where, uh, you know, Ben magically pulled out the lightsaber, that was cool. And the rest of the everybody else will be like, no, you don't understand. No, that was. A, uh, uh. And it's just like, let it go. Let everybody have their fun. Yeah, for real. Yeah, because as much as like I don't consider myself a hardcore Star Wars fan, I still enjoy having it, and I love having chats with anyone anywhere about anything geeky. Uh, sure. So I'm always down for that. Yeah, but yeah. So you you sort of self describe yourself before as writing middle brow science fiction. So I'm curious, what exactly do you consider middle brow science fiction? I mean, it's science fiction that is very clearly science fiction. It's not trying to hide the fact that it's science fiction. Um, I'm not going to be one of those authors who's like, no, I'm not really writing science fiction. I'm just positing things in a different setting or anything. It's like, no, I write science fiction. But the (laughs) other thing is that so much of my science fiction and sort of my agreement with Tor, not in writing, but as in just general philosophy, is I'm writing the sort of science fiction that you can give to people who don't read science fiction a lot or haven't read science fiction a lot or have been worried about being identified with a geek, you know, because they're reading science fiction. So it's the stuff that's an open door, right? It's like the stuff that you can give to someone. It has enough there that the died in the wool science fiction, the fans, the, the people like me who have been in the life, so to speak, since like eight years old, will have enough that they can, you know, chew on. But the folks who this is literally their first time around the block will not get lost. I mean, one of the things that I talk about is most of my writing has to pass what I call the Dora test. And Dora, in this particular case, is my mother-in-law. And she doesn't read science fiction. <laughs> she reads uh, she reads Julie Garwood. She reads Nora Roberts. And so that's the sort of thing that she reads. But she's also my mother-in-law, and she loves me, so she's going to read my stuff. And I want to be able to have her read it and enjoy it uh, without having to fake it, right? To be like, oh, yes, the thing you did with the aliens, that was cool. You know, I don't want her to do that. I want her to be able to to follow it and enjoy it. And at the same time, I don't want to lose everybody else who's, you know, been reading science fiction for 30 or 40 years. So it's an interesting tightrope, so to speak, to fulfill all the desires and interests of the people who have been in science fiction for a really long time, but at the same time, hold the door open for the folks who are just starting off in that. And I think it's an important role to have. I mean, there are people who I would suggest are doing more complex science fiction or in uh, than I am doing or doing stuff that really sort of builds on uh, what's come before in a more substantive way than what I do. And that's, you know, great. And I think that that's absolutely necessary. But I do think it's also useful for us to have people who are writing science fiction that is inviting in the people who are not necessarily science fiction fans or don't think that they're science fiction fans yet. You know, my hope is that, you know, I get people who are like, yours is the first science fiction book I've read. It was amazing. Where do I go from here? And I'm like, well, I have a list for you. And then I pull out the, you know, the names and and books of all these other uh, people who are writing amazing stuff that now that they've gotten their foot through the door, they're ready to go and take that next step. Yeah, I think there is absolutely something to be said for that, uh, because as like deeper literary as some books can be, like, 
if someone's goal is to read that, they might never get there if they don't have that doorway into it. Um, so right. no, I, I think that's a great position to be in. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I think it's useful. I mean, I think it's useful both, I mean, for me, I mean, it's working out great for me, thanks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but the other thing is, is also with any genre, it's not just science fiction and fantasy. I mean, it's romance, it's Westerns, it's, you know, anything that has been its own sort of um, little world for decades or longer, it can be intimidating for people to, you know, step in. They don't know where to start. They're they're hesitant that they're not going to be in on the joke and, and all of that sort of stuff. And it's perfectly reasonable for people to be hesitant. And in those cases, you want to be able to say, no, that's, you know, I totally get where you're coming from, but try this see if it works for you. And if it works for you, then we've got so much else that you'll be ready for as well. I mean, my belief is that, um, and it's not just in science fiction or fantasy, but in any other sort of genre, having the writers who are willing to be uh, the people who are at the door, not gatekeepers, but holding that door open um, is really super important. I don't think I'm the only one, obviously, but um, I think that you know, it's a position that I've sort of staked out. And it's also a position that I think Tor, um, my publisher, uh, sort of expects me to to do. And I'm happy to fulfill that because after all, they gave me that big, long contract to do that stuff too. Yeah. Big, long, like what, either 10 or 13 book contract over years. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. understand yeah. their investment there. <laughs> 13 books. And I'm, I've still got like seven or eight to go. Honestly, I've lost track. Yeah. No, that, hey, that's a good position to be in. Yes, it is. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think maybe part of uh, what we're getting at here also with like holding that door open is I, I've always kind of been rubbed the wrong way by there's a, a certain crowd of readers for any genre who feel that, oh, like this is like your advanced level category of books that you need to read, right? First, like you need to rise up through the ranks and read all the easier ones first before you can get to this level. But they also look down on those level. So at a certain point, you just write a story to entertain and there is nothing wrong with entertainment and you shouldn't like have a value judgment on that either way. Sure. I mean, and I think that that's absolutely true that there's always going to be, whether it's science fiction, whether it's comics, whether it's, you know, mysteries or whatever, there's always going to be that, that nerd who's like, oh, you like science fiction? Name three golden era science fiction writers and they're Hugo winning novels, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and there's nothing you can do about those sort of people other than ignore them. They will always be there. They will always make their identity being more in that uh, genre than anybody else, more genre than thou, so to speak. Um, but I don't think that that's useful. I mean, I don't think it's useful strictly from the point of view of a writer who's trying to, you know, make a living doing this sort of stuff. I don't want anyone to feel like they can't read or shouldn't read my stuff because someone's going to shame them for it, you know, one way or the other, either that it's too simple or that, you know, uh, oh, you don't, you haven't read everything by John Scalzi. And I thought you said you were a fan. It's like, no, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a person who reads widely, right? And reading widely means that you're not going to read every single thing that one person writes. And that's perfectly fine. You know, you can develop your own, you know, library of things that you love without reference to uh, anyone else. There's also the argument of what's the science fiction canon and should everybody read in the canon? Um, oh, God. And, <laughs> well, and, and the thing about it is I think 30 years ago, you could make the argument that the canon was, you know, a 
a specific track. I think now here in 2022, um, it's not possible to to make that argument. There are we are several generations out from quote unquote the golden age of science fiction, and so many of the people who are reading. Uh, and writing now are coming into it from so many different places. Not everybody has gone the the Heinlein, Asimov, Bradbury route. Some people have you know gone the Ursula, uh, you know uh, Octavia, uh, Nora route. Right? You know all of the ways that you can get into science fiction now. There are so many different ways, and there's no wrong way. So many of the writers who are putting out great stuff now got into science fiction and fantasy through YA, which has its own class of foundational writers. And there are people who will want to be about snobs about that. But I mean, look at who's on you know the bestseller list right now. And they are all coming in from so many different places, but they are still connecting with so many readers that this stubborn insistence of, no, there's only one there's only one canon and it's what I say it is and it's only one particular way. You're not going to dissuade people from it, but it looks more and more foolish the further you get out. It's not to say that however you come in, you can't then go back and read so much of the writing that has come before if it's of interest to you. But the you know stubborn insistence that it has to be this particular way, right, um, just doesn't apply anymore. And the more that people try to insist on that, um, the more that the genre is going to leave them behind because so many of the people who are successful, who are expanding the borders of the genre, aren't listening to them and have no reason to do so. Yeah. And I mean, not even that, but these days, just the absolute explosion in visual media as well, right? Like, I feel like you could have a perfectly good entry into the genre from, say, watching a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, um, something like that, right? There's just so many options on the table. Yeah, no, and that's the whole thing is that whether or not nerds want to acknowledge it, and I think that at this point they really should, uh, we won, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are, you know, the the Marvel the Marvel universe uh, is to you know the uh, especially the late twenty tens uh, what uh, disaster films were for the seventies, or biblical, uh, epics were for the 1950s or musicals were to the forties and thirties, right? They are the predominant cash crop of, of Hollywood. And as such have a huge influence over, um, how people, you know, perceive, uh, both the cinematic world and, you know, the genre in which they exist anyway. So as far as it goes, you know, it's, it's okay to acknowledge that A, we won, B, that that means that there's going to be diversity of different ways for people to approach the genre, not just obviously with books or obviously with cinema, but then also with video games, for example, or with tabletop or comics, you know, all of these things or mix and match all of these to your heart's delight. There is no one path into the genre anymore. It would be impossible to have one path in the genre. Now, there are some things that I think are as close to universal as you're going to get right now. Star Wars is one of them. Star Trek's another one. You know, uh, Marvel Universe, you, you noted yourself. These things are uh, things that uh, are constants. A decade, uh, a decade back, the you know the Harry Potter's and the Lord of the Rings films. All of those things were as close as we're going to get to a universal uh, experience. Hunger Games is another example. Um, so there are still common touchstones, but 
around those common touchstones. There are so many diverse ways of getting into genre now that literally no one all has the same path anymore. And I think that's for the best because, again, what we will see from that is people with a diverse set of foundational uh, authors and foundational works and foundational influences are going to spawn completely different, uh, you know, new work um, than the guy uh, on one side and the gal on the other side and the non- non-binary person uh, over there on the left, right? As far as all of these people are doing, they're doing all these different things because they come from different places. And that's actually what makes this era of science fiction and fantasy so exciting and the what i call the new golden age of science fiction a much more diverse a much broader a much more commercially accessible and successful uh, era than any other era in science fiction that we have had to date yeah i am constantly going on about how there has never been a better time uh to be a science fiction or fantasy fan um which i mean <laughs> this is the only time i've had to be a science fiction or fantasy fan but i still stand by that No, and I think you're right. I mean, I am, in addition to being someone who writes science fiction, you know, literature, I was also a film critic for years and years and years and years, right? And I've published books on film and I, you know, obviously a a student of the genre. And it's absolutely true. I mean, there are times, you know, just speaking cinematically, there are times where you have had um, science fiction and fantasy and science fiction and fantasy has always been part of the, you know, cinematic universe from, you know, George Miles to the very first uh, uh, cinematic representation of Frankenstein in, in 1910, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was, you know, I think it was like 1916 and all this sort of stuff. And all it's always been there, but the clustering of it and how it was uh, approached by um, audiences has definitely changed. For the first 50 or 60 years that science fiction and fantasy were in uh, the cinematic universe, um, they, it was basically B-movie stuff, the stuff that you would put on the undercard while you had, you know, uh, your A-list musical or drama or whatever. You know, it was a serial as opposed to the main event. Um, that only started changing um, right around 1968 when you had the double whammy of 2001 uh, Space Odyssey and then Planet of the Apes, right? Where all of a sudden uh, it started uh, being taken more seriously. And then, of course, Star Wars happened and that was, you know, we were off to the races. So, but as far as it goes, um, you know, again, up until... 1968, uh, it was sort of dismissed as, you know, the other stuff, the stuff you programmed in. And even after Star Wars, there was so much of the stuff that was just put out there to put it out there and wasn't necessarily considered to be the top flight stuff that movie studios were producing, even if it was uh, financially profitable. You have to get into, you know, quite honestly, uh, the last 30 years before um, science fiction and fantasy started being taken seriously as a creative cinematic endeavor on the same level as musicals or, um, you know, dramas or any of that sort of stuff. It was very important uh, that the Lord of the Rings uh, Return of the King won Best Picture 
in 2003, I believe it was, uh, because it, you know, because it made the point that, yes, we are now operating on the level where not only are we commercially uh, important, but we are culturally important as well. And we haven't really looked back since then. Yeah. And for the better for everyone. Uh, this is fascinating hearing sort of the, the film critic history of all of this as well. <laughs> it's the thing I, I tell people. It's like I didn't start having novels published until I was 35 years old, right? Um, so I had to do other things with my life if I wanted to eat. And uh, so I was a film critic. I was a uh, opinion columnist for a newspaper for a number of years. I worked at America Online as their in-house writer and editor. I did freelance uh, work and did for example, I did a lot of nonfiction work before Old Man's War came out in uh, 2005. I was completely surprised that I ended up being a full-time novelist. It was never my ambition. I thought that I would end up, you know, I wanted to be a, a newspaper columnist like Mike Rocco or Molly Ivins or, you know, Art Buchwald or, or you know, uh, I've famous film critic like Roger Ebert or, um, you know, these people. And to all of a sudden have that shunt over to writing novels was like, well, I mean, okay, if you want to pay me for this, I will definitely do this. This is amazing. But it was uh, as much a surprise to me as I think uh, anyone else, frankly. Yeah, although I do love, uh, I forget whether it was on your blog or in a past interview where you were saying that uh, part of sort of the kick in the pants to write a novel was you'd been telling people in high school you were going to write that book and then your 10-year reunion came around and they're like, well, yep. you wrote in that book yet? <laughs> yeah, no, that was exactly right. It was the thing of, well, I was the I was the writer kid, quote unquote, in high school. And so I don't think in a, in a, in a mean way, you know, that they would be asking me, where's the novel? But they would have assumed that I would have written that novel by now. Right. And I wanted to be like, yes, in fact, it's done. Um, so and I'm sending it off to agents now, you know. And so, yeah, the very first novel I wrote uh, was basically so that I could go back to my 10th high school reunion and be like, yep. Here it is. Ironically, this will be my 35th high school reunion this year, which also coincides with the 100th anniversary of my high school. Um, so I will be going back to that. And of course, it's fun because I had a very small group of people in my class. We're like 60 people uh, all told because it was a private boarding school. And they are all super supportive now. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, yes, you lived your dream. Way to go. <laughs> like, oh, go, guys. I like you guys too. Oh, I love that. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we've been talking about general writer stuff for a while now. Uh, well, let's dive into the book you're here to discuss. So do you have a sure. pitch for the Kaiju Preservation Society? Yeah, the way that I've been talking about it to people in a very, very basic way is I say um, it's about friendship and science and very large creatures and occasionally nuclear explosions. And that's basically where I leave it. <laughs> it's enough to pique their interest and all technically accurate. Yes, that is the technically accurate is the best kind of accurate. <laughs> and I hear so this also has a bit of an unusual origin story for a novel. Uh, can you share what that story was? Sure. I mean, basically what happened was it was a, a complete accident of a novel. I had no plan to write it. I was, in fact, in 2020, which was when uh, I was 
meant to be writing a completely different novel. I just couldn't get it out. I was writing this novel that was dark and gritty and moody and uh, politically tinged. And it turns out that 2020 was exactly the wrong year to be writing that type of novel. And I just couldn't make it work. You know, I would write the sentences, as I would say to people, the sentences were fine. The paragraphs were good. The chapters were okay. And none of it hung together. And so I wrote tens and thousands of words on it. It was not like I wasn't writing, but it was just not happening. And then at the end of the year, I got sick with something that uh, I was told by the test wasn't COVID, but sure felt like COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, and it was just all messed up. And then at, finally it got to the point where I just couldn't write that particular novel anymore. And I had to actually go to my editor, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, and say, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. It's just not working. And I know that I have a book due soon. And by soon, I mean, we're, we're talking like in the space of a, a couple of months, but I just can't do it. It's just not working. And he graciously took the book off the schedule. And then when he did, you know, I was like collapsed in relief. And that's when my brain was like, oh, since you're not working on that novel, you're never, ever going to finish anyway. Here's this entire other one. And it's got big monsters in it. And plunk, the whole thing just sort of downloaded in my brain. And I got back to the computer. I told Patrick, I was like, hey, remember how I wasn't going to have stuff in time for the deadline? Give me give me six weeks. I'll have something. And, and then I wrote Kaiju in five. So it was a complete accident. And it was great because after grinding my gears for almost a year on a novel that I just wasn't able to do, um, having this one come so easily and so quickly was a great reminder, both of the fact that I could write novels still, that you know I wasn't going to have to ditch it all and become a Walmart creator, but also reconnected me with the idea that I actually really did like writing, that I enjoyed telling stories, and so it was a really, um, it was a really useful novel for me to have, both in the practical sense of then being able to have a novel come out when it was supposed to, but also in the sense of re sort of uh, reintroducing me to the fact that I actually love my job as opposed to it's just a thing I do because, you know, I fell into it. Right. And I mean, that could not have been a super easy decision to make, right, when you eventually decided to move on from that uh, 2020 project. So how exactly do you recognize when a project isn't working and how can you like take that leap to make the call to move on? I mean, in this particular case, it just really was, I, you know, after so many attempts of writing it and then rewriting, I just realized that it wasn't working. I mean, there were other factors as well. There was one point where I wrote um, like a whole chapter and I was very happy with that chapter. And then I came back the next day and I couldn't find that chapter, um, <laughs> which was, which oh, should be man. impossible. It should be impossible, the idea, because everything saves automatically, um, you know, both on, you know, the cloud and then on your local, you know, computer. And I just literally couldn't find it. And I was like, that's a sign. It was the thing that was like, I was like, look, I've been working so hard on this thing and it's just not working. So for me, it was the whole, it was really hard because one, it meant that I was going to blow a deadline. And having been a former journalist, the one thing that they pound in your head is you do not miss a deadline. But, but the thing was, and I actually mentioned this in, in the afterwards, you know, there were two things going on. It was the idea of a sunk cost fallacy, right? The idea that you keep banging your head against the wall because you've been banging your head against the wall for so long. You're like, well, this wall is going to crack eventually. Um, you just keep uh, trying to make it work. And it 
sometimes just isn't going to work and you have to recognize it. And then the other thing is, like I said, the saying, you know, with relation to video games in particular, but it works with other creative stuff too, which is a delayed game will eventually be good. Whereas a uh, rushed game will be bad forever, right? That if you prioritize the deadline over the actual quality of the work, then you're going to have a, you're just going to have bad product. And that was really important for me to realize, you know, ironically, it's not true with video games anymore because they can patch, but, you know, but fundamentally it is true because you never get that first impression over. And there are so many games that even if they've been patched to cover up their problems, you know, the first month and a half where their miserable gaming experiences are what people are going to remember and what they're going to talk about. So you never get that uh, you never get that second chance at a first impression, whether you're a person or whether, whether it's a work uh, that you've done or whatever. And I was, I would rather get it right than to just crank it out um, on a deadline. And fortunately for me, um, the folks at Tor felt similarly. Now, it helped in that particular case that I had never missed a deadline before. I mean, there were times where I got the book in at 7 a.m., on the last possible day that it could be in, in order to make all the production deadlines, you know, but I'd never missed. And so for me to say after 15 books, this is the book I can't finish. They took it seriously because they knew I wouldn't have said it if I didn't mean it. Uh, so I really did appreciate that on their end of things, but yeah, no, sometimes you just have to let things go. There was another time where I was working on the sequel to the Android stream And the problem with that was I was seven chapters in and I realized, and this may be a spoiler, but it's been 15 years, so deal with it. Um, (laughs) The the protagonist's problems were solved at the end of the Android's dream. His best friend was a planet-controlling computer and his girlfriend was the richest person on the planet Earth. You know, um, between the two of them, there was no problem that he could have that they couldn't solve. And so basically, I wrote seven chapters where basically he couldn't call them. Right. And I realized that that wasn't a story. That was just a bunch of, uh, you know, scenarios. And I was, and so I sent to Patrick um, at the time, I was like, this is terrible. And I could put it out and it would be okay. But I would rather just do something else. And I said, would, how about I give you another old man's war book? And he was like, yes, that would be fine. So uh, that's, that's how that one worked. Um, so it's happened to me before, but you just, you just realize at a certain point you have to let it go. Um, and hopefully you have a plan B. I had a plan B in the case of um, the Android's Dream sequel. I didn't have a plan B uh, in case of the 2020 book. But fortunately for me, my brain had been working on a plan B even when I wasn't paying attention. So that was nice. Yeah. And I mean, I guess digging to the second part of that, because I find it fascinating that you say the entire book just downloaded into your head. So what I hear as a reader is that this entire story, like chapter, sentence structure and all went into your head and all you had to do was type it out. There was barely any effort. I know that's not true, right? An experienced seasoned writer like you still taking five weeks to write a book like this. So how or like what was that writing process like for you? Right. Um, Because just getting the idea in your head is not the same as having that finished draft. Okay, so you remember the part where you said, but you know that as a writer, that's not how it works? No, that's actually how it worked. Seriously, okay. <laughs> in this particular, I'm sorry, I hate to be that guy, but literally it was, um, I understood who the character was, I understood how they were going to get into 
the you know the universe that they were in uh and it just literally was um boing 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 and it really was pretty much all done except for the typing now when i was typing there were you know obviously bits that i was adding in as i was going along because i had the through line as opposed to every single bit of dialogue that would ever happen in the book right sure um, but those things are not difficult for me to do. Those are just the, you know, that's the equivalent of a really uh, experienced in improv group, you know, vamping with each other, the whole yes and experience, uh, as opposed to we don't know where we're going with this. But, you know, so this was the equivalent of my brain as an improv group saying, you, this is what's happening. Here are your parameters and here's where you're going to finish go and everybody knew their roles and and off they went to the to the races now i've always written fairly quickly so five weeks is not unheard of in terms of me writing a novel red shirts was also written about in that same period of time i was that was a five or six week novel um the shortest time i've ever taken to write a novel was two weeks and that was the consuming fire uh and that was pure accident because i looked at my schedule and i was like oh this book is due in two weeks. I guess I should write that now. Um, and I don't recommend that because that was a miserable, miserable, miserable experience. It seems um, like the book title probably or applies to that writing experience I as well. Just, at, at the end of it, I was like literally look, looking at my hands and my thumbs were twitching involuntarily because I was typing 8,000 words a day. Now, in that particular case, I had been mulling the story over in my brain enough that I knew all the beats for the story and where it was going to go. So again, it was a lot of typing as opposed to uh, story crafting. But in each of those cases, yeah, you I sit down and you know the story beats are there, and then you write to you know length. For Kaiju, I was writing uh, basically a chapter a day, you know, or somewhere in that, and that's about two thousand twenty five hundred words. Um, but like I said, you know, uh, the whole plot just sort of unpacked itself in my brain. And then I just wrote to the plot and I got to, I got to experience the joy of discovering the characters as I wrote them. But, uh, in terms of, um, sorry, no, it was, it was all there. I mean, I hate to be that again, I hate to be that guy, but that's, that's what happened. No, I love that. I mean, there's, there's always edge. There's no one rule that applies to everyone, right? Especially not in writing or any creative endeavor. Sure. Well, and I think the thing that happens is on, and that in this particular case, there were two things that worked in my advantage. Um, the first is that simply at that point, I had written 15 novels already. So it's not like the muscle memory wasn't there. The second thing is that, and I, I say this with no aspersion to Kaiju Preservation Society at all, but this is not a stylistically or narratively ambitious novel. It is very straight ahead. It knows what it's doing, and I'm not trying to get fancy. I'm just literally, look at this cool thing that's happening. Woo, wow, isn't this exciting? Okay, you're done. Thanks for, you know, thanks for coming on the ride. Come again. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, and now I'm going to nest multiple narratives within this within the scope of this thing i'm going to have everybody speak an iambic pentameter but you won't notice because whatever you know stylistically it was not ambitious right it was just look there are big monsters but who are really the monsters here 
and scene, right? So in that sort of sense, I made it easy for myself to write it in five weeks because I wasn't trying to be complicated. I was just trying to be fun. Uh, and in this case, fun was what I needed as a writer after struggling for a year trying to write this you know, dark and complex novel uh, in a year that did not reward trying to write a dark and complex novel. Um, and also I suspected, and it's been kind of been proven out in the response to Kaiju, which has been very positive, um, that most people were like me. They're after two and now coming up on three years of uh, this bullshit, right? Um, yep. That we are living through. Um, that people wanted a little bit of escapism. I wanted it, and you know, speaking as a writer, I was like, "I'm doing something fun. Screw y'all. I'm going to do that." Um, and I think that people are responding to, "Yes, I did actually need something that was just fun. Thank you." Yeah. See. So yeah. On that note, I actually had the entirely wrong impression of Kaiju Preservation Society going in because I am like historically terrible with not reading back cover copy or anything about a book before I go into it. Right. So I was like, okay, I know that this has some COVID references in it. Kaiju Preservation Society. Clearly, this book is about a group who wants to be on the side of the monsters that are destroying the world, and they're just rooting for them while everything burns down. Uh, not quite how the book went. <laughs> I like that. Maybe somebody should write that, but that was definitely not what I was going to do. But yeah, I mean, certainly after, and especially after the last several years that we've lived through, I can absolutely see some people being like, yep, let the kaiju have a run at it because we messed it up, didn't we? Um, so I could, I could absolutely see that being a story that somebody would want to tell. Not me, uh, not at this particular point, but um, yeah, no, the, the fun thing about the title, um, aside from the fact that um, I think it's a really good title, kind of like Red Shirts was a really good title, and that there's really no ambiguity about what you're getting uh, as the main course of the story. There's going to be kaiju in it, right? And All right. You, <laughs> and you may or may not know what kaiju are. I think at this point, most people who are in geek culture get it uh and the ones that aren't pick it up pretty quickly but um it does what it says on the 10 and i think that that's super useful um but uh yeah no for me uh i think that i just really wanted to have a have a story where i looked at the kaiju in a way that I hadn't seen the kaiju mostly looked at before. I'm not to say that I'm the first to take this particular take in it, because anybody who makes a claim that I'm the first to do anything, particularly at this point in uh, science fiction fantasy history, is setting themselves up to be corrected. But it was something that at least I hadn't seen very often. You know, the idea of, you know, what does a kaiju want with uh, humans anyway? And the answer is not a lot, you know, um, quite frankly, uh, taking the kaiju on their terms, on their turf, as opposed to the, either the other way around, because almost always when you're dealing with kaiju um, in literature, they are coming over here. Either they have been asleep for generations and have suddenly emerged, or they've come through a, you know, a portal or all that sort of stuff, and they come and they wreak havoc for whatever reasons they wreak havoc. Um, and I thought it would be kind of fun to flip that on its head. And instead of you know them being the invaders, you know have us be 
the invaders, benign invaders in this particular case with this particular story. But still, we're on their turf. And what do they want from us or how are they going to apprehend us? As it turns out, they're not going to apprehend us a whole lot any more than we apprehend, you know, uh, you know, small vermin, you know, like we are earthworms. Uh, to to a kaiju, literally that same level of care and concern uh, that we have with earthworms, they're going to have with us because they're just there's nothing that we you know no point in contact of you know our life experiences, and that was kind of fun to do that particular take of things because, like I said, I haven't seen too much of that before, and I thought it was worth pursuing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I thought it felt like a nice fresh take, although in all honesty, I am not that familiar with the kaiju genre in general, either film or <laughs> literature. Uh, I mean, I guess on that note, film critic background here, any kaiju films you can recommend uh, as someone who has maybe only ever seen like the most recent three Godzillas? You know, the thing is, I think all the kaiju movies are actually super interesting because particularly the ones particularly the japanese ones starting with gojira and you know the 1954 version and just moving forward in the japanese you know the toho studios uh uh versions of them because kaiju are always metaphor right kaiju are always metaphor they represent things and particularly in the japanese psyche of the 1950s and 60s it was the Japanese relationship with the nuclear age, right? They are the only country upon which bombs have been dropped for war purposes, right? You know, we've all done, you know, the major powers all did testing, you know, either in the desert or in the atolls or in Siberia or wherever, but Japan's the only one that had the bombs be applied to them against a population. Uh, and so their relationship with the nuclear age is personified in the kaiju in a, in a very direct way that I think it's hard for Americans and people who are not Japanese to actually understand. I don't pretend to understand exactly how uh, they, you know, they respond to it. But, uh, but even moving forward, you know, uh, what do kaiju mean to the people who are making them and watching them? The United States cinema, for example, Cloverfield, um, which is definitely a kaiju movie, it was one of the first uh, movies that dealt with the destruction of New York City uh, after 9-11. And uh, in some ways, it's a 9-11 film. Just people don't understand what's going on. People are running around in the streets. They're covered in dust. They're seeing death. And there's definitely a part of understanding where Cloverfield is that is informed by what the United States and New York City in particular had gone through in the previous decade. So, you know, that's part of it as well. Um, the uh, Pacific Rim, which is one of my favorites, is very much of a meta observation on what kaiju are both as, you know, them in themselves, but also uh, how we as a culture react to them. The first 10 minutes of that film, sort of recapitulating how the kaiju arrived and how uh, the world responded with them, you know, to them first with shock, then with resolve, and eventually, uh, you know, devolving into parody 
until they came back in a, a much more powerful second wave um, is really the recapitulation of how we have dealt with any sort of uh, major tragedy that literally shakes our perception of the world and spins it away again and again and again. Kaiju are metaphor. To me, the Kaiju Preservation Society is a metaphor as well. Uh, in a very real sense, the Kaiju of my of my book track directly to the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. Um, because when I was asking, what does the COVID, you know, what does the the you know the what is our relationship to the kaiju? And the kaiju don't care, right? By the same relationship the the coronavirus that uh, was COVID-19 doesn't care about people. We respond to it however we want to respond to it. Either we, you know, uh, isolate ourselves or we say, I'm not going to be bound. I'm not afraid, you know, and then we catch it and die regardless. Um, but however we responded to it, it doesn't matter to the, the COVID virus. The COVID virus is going to do what it's going to do. And in that sort of sense, the kaiju of of my book, and the book takes place during COVID times. Um, there's a lot of parallels. Um, there's a lot of metaphorical sort of energy that's going on that that tracks to that. And so, knowing that you know, knowing that that's the the thing that's always happening with the kaiju, it always makes um, watching a kaiju movie kind of interesting because you're wondering in every case. What is the metaphor here? But to go back to, to answer your question, so Gojira, 1954, I would say go ahead and look at Cloverfield and then Pacific Rim, which aside from anything else it is, is just ridiculous fun. <laughs> just ridiculous fun is probably one of the best ways to sell a movie to me at this point. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, so what was it like writing something? Because uh, you talk about it being in COVID times, but like your writing process was literally during the timeline of the book, right? I think you mentioned that like there were even, I think you ended writing on a day where the plot ended or there was a plane that touched down, something like eerily specific. Yeah. Well, no. So when I started writing it, I started writing it in February of 2021. Um, and I sort of, and I knew the day, kind of the day that it was going to start was going to be March 11th, 2020, because that's the day or right around the day that everything just went to hell, right? Um, and I knew because you know I was on a I was on a cruise at the time, talking of you know, <laughs> weird places to be. Yeah. Um, and and I I and everybody else on the cruise were like, we're not going to you know keep up with what's going off on in the world. But March 11th happened. Like NBA stopped. You know, schools stopped. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson got is sick. You know, all of these things happen all at once. And we're all like, holy crap, you know, I guess, you know, we can't run away from this. So the book starts in that particular week. It ends on March 19th of uh, 2021. And so when I was writing it, knowing that these were the dates that I was looking at, I pulled up my Google calendar and I started tracking where the events were going on in every spe specific chapter. It's like, this is happening on this date. This much time has elapsed uh, when Jamie is working as a food delivery person. This is when uh, Jamie goes to join KPS, so on and so forth. And I wanted to have those exact dates down, partly because it helped me structure what I was doing, but also for things like, for example, 
in order to get to a, a particular place that they needed to be in Greenland, right? Because there's a particular place that needed to be in Greenland. There is a particular flight that goes there. It leaves at particular times, lands at particular times. And on that particular date that they were going to arrive, which I knew but wasn't like specifying particularly in the text, but I still knew, I wanted to know what the weather was, where the, you know, where that uh, place in Greenland they were going, what the sunrise uh, time was, and all these other little bits of information that weren't necessarily going to matter to anybody else, but would certainly help ground it for me. Because it's very rare that I'm doing things that are in mostly current time. Um, but if you're going to do that, you want to make sure that you don't get tripped up by, um, you know, little things. And you can still mess up. I, I actually posted a, a, a post on my website uh, where I was like, I screwed up on uh, a thing about uh, a handgun. I had a Glock 19 and I had somebody checking the safety, right? And all the safeties on a Glock 19 are internal. And I knew that because once I wrote down, this is a Glock 19, I was like, I should check that to make sure that there, you know, that it actually conforms to this. And I checked it and I was like, I need to fix that. And then I didn't. Um, and so now I have people sending me emails, you know, Glock 19s don't have uh, safety. You know? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> we will fix that later. But you, but this is the point. You want to be able to get as much as you can get accurate. Uh, accurate. Uh, and so for me, it was kind of interesting writing the novel and watching the story get closer and closer and closer to the current time that I was literally writing. There was no point at which I was running really in advance of uh, the time frame. But it, it, like I said, it caught up literally on the last day. And I was like, well, that's convenient. The end. Off it goes. Yep. <laughs> Well, uh, so on that ending point, what's next for you? Any upcoming work you can talk about? Uh, I have a upcoming audio project that we haven't announced yet, but will be coming out probably in the second half of the year. Uh, hopefully, we'll be announcing that real soon. Uh, but suffice to say, if you know which uh, exclusive audio projects that I have done before, um, then you'll have an idea of what this one will be. <laughs> Uh, I hate being coy, but I, I just, I haven't checked with Audible to say, can I tell people I'm doing this? Sure. Thing? And for anyone listening to this live or when this episode releases, you can probably find a link to that in the show notes because I probably have taken a while to get this episode out to you. <laughs> um, also this year at some point, and I don't know when, uh, Love, Death and Robots Volume 3 is going to come out and I have a uh, animated short that is in that. It's going to be a sequel to the three robots segment that happened in the first se uh, the first volume, the first season. Um, and I've seen it. It looks great. I can't wait for other people to see it. Um, and then beyond that, I am working on another novel, which will hopefully be out next year, 2023. Um, as long as you know the world doesn't blow up or I get distracted or some other thing. But I do have a very solid idea of what I'm doing with it. Uh, and it's it's a lot of fun. I think it's going to be um, similar in tone, uh, if not plot or concept, to uh, uh, what Kaiju is. So if you liked Kaiju, I have, I have reason to believe that you will like this next upcoming novel as well. And then there are so many things that I have that are in development that I literally can't talk about. But... Uh, <laughs> If they, uh, if they all come to fruition, then and that will be amazing. Uh, and you will know them when they happen because there will be big, big announcements and they'll be hard to ignore. But in the meantime, 
uh, yeah, no, I'm keeping busy. Yeah, I am sure. Well, fingers crossed that all those things do actually come to fruition. I know in publishing and other development lands, uh, <laughs> the timeline is very slow, typically. Yes, very much so. Um, well, I am also curious because as someone who, uh, like you said, obviously keeps very, very busy, how do you seek out and choose what books you read with your limited time? Um, and I mean, as we've discussed with such a huge selection available these days. Um, sometimes it's made easy uh, with me for a couple of reasons. One, I get sent nearly everything, right? Because I stack them up on my website and put them up on Twitter and say, here are the new books that I got. And there are people like, oh, that's exciting. Thank you for telling me. Um, or we do the big idea posts where I have authors come and talk about their new books and they send me those books as well. Um, and, and in addition to helping others find new writing, that really is useful to me. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, I'll have editors or publicists, you know, say, hey, we read this book for blooming purposes. And then I have, so I have a stack of books that I'm looking at to see if I will uh, endorse them. And between all of those things, you know, I just, my dance card for reading is, uh, is filled, um, which is a great situation to be in. Um, it's nice when the work comes to you rather than you have to seek it out. Do you know what I mean? Cause also yeah. I'm the world's laziest person. So the fact that people are like, Hey, would you really take a look at this? I was like, well, I'm, that solves the problem of what I'll read next, doesn't it? And having so much stuff coming in really does, even if I don't get to all of it at the, you know, at one time, cause there's, I still have to write books and I still have to do everything else that I do. At the very least, it gives me a good snapshot of what's being published in, at the very least, mainstream publishing uh, in science fiction and fantasy at the moment and, and allows me to speak to some uh, degree of accuracy about this being a wonderful time to be reading. Because even the stuff that I'm not getting to, it's not because I don't want to. It's just literally, who has, who has time? I could spend literally all my life reading and still never catch up. And that's an amazing thing. Uh, for any genre, quite honestly. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I have seen those pictures of the book stacks that you're mentioning. I imagine you must have a warehouse for all of these books at this point. I have, well, I have a fire trap of a basement, which is what that is. <laughs> but what, what has happened recently, um, if you've been to my website uh, in the last several months, you'll know that uh, my wife and I recently purchased a church in our a uh, little town. It had gone up uh, for sale. And one of the things that I'm going to do with that church, aside from being office space and storage space, um, is basically up in the balcony area um, where there are pews now, I'm going to refurbish that. And that's going to become, uh, you know, the John Scalzi library. And then all the books that are currently, uh, you know, ready to go up as a tinderbox in my basement uh, will be put on shelves and, you know, finally be able to uh, be looked at as they should be looked at. So I'm really looking forward to having the, you know, the John Scalzi genre library out and accessible. And when people come to visit, they'll be like, Hey, can I borrow this? And I'll be like, yes, if you don't bring it back. I will send the cats to eat your bones. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty proud of my bookshelf I spent a few years putting together, but I cannot wait to hopefully you will post some pictures of this wonderful library once you have it completed. Oh, you know that I will. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, are there any good books you've read lately and can recommend? And I do like to preface this because I know you receive a lot of books in advance. They don't even have to be out yet. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be read lately. Right. The ones that I've been recommending uh, recently, because I've been asked this a lot because I've been on tour and everybody wants to know, um, I've been recommending 
um, The Actual Star, which is by Monica Byrne, um, Light from Uncommon Stars, which is by uh, Rika Aoki, um, Goliath, which is by Tochi Anibiochi. Um, and then I was just reading, because I had an uh, interview with him recently, um, Sweep of Stars by Morris Broadus. And uh, all of those are really tremendous books and, uh, you know, cover a lot of, and again, the whole idea of the people who are writing now are all coming from uh, different directions. This is absolutely the case with all of these books. Um, they all have different um, touchstones in their development. Uh, and so uh, what we're getting, even when, for example, like Sweep of Stars is space opera, right? But it's not space opera. Like I would write space opera space, you know, uh, Maurice and I are completely different people with completely different backgrounds. Uh, and so that space opera is fundamentally different than mine. And then the final book that I've been, uh, reading recently, uh, which I've been very much enjoying uh, is The Cartographers by Punk Shepard. It came out the same day that Kaiju Preservation Society came out. And so uh, aside from the fact that uh, Punk is a friend of mine uh, and a really great writer, um, it's the thing of uh, I wanted to be able to uh, support you know someone who's book birthday had the same uh, day as mine. So I was very excited uh, to have it come out and just really have enjoyed reading it so far. Yeah, fantastic. And that's a small world. I actually just had a lovely chat with Pung not too long ago, and her episode will be coming out just before yours. Yeah, isn't she the best? She is so smart and such a good writer uh, and just all around fabulous person. So oh my God, well yes. Done, well done, you. Well <laughs> and, done, you. And we got to run. geek out about maps for like 30 minutes straight, which was so much fun. <laughs> well, as as you should have, give, given the uh, the nature of her particular book. So. Absolutely. Uh, well, John, the way I like to close these interviews out is just asking you, what is one thing you are excited about right now? Uh, I'm excited that uh, I get to be at home for two and a half weeks uh, before I go back out on on a festival circuit. Uh, I was on tour for basically two straight weeks. I just got back from the Hoboken Writers Weekend. Uh, I get to spend a couple day, a couple weeks at home, uh, sort of relaxing, spending time with my family uh, before I then go off to. And again, since this will be in the future, it may have already happened. Uh, LA Times uh, Book Festival, the Bay Area Book Festival, the American uh, Writers Festival, uh, and then the Gaither's Book Book Festival. So all of those are happening uh, in fairly rapid sequence. Uh, in in the near future, but uh, to be able to be home uh, and to relax, maybe do a little work on the new novel, uh, and uh, <laughs> just sort of kind of go <sighs> is wonderful. So that's what I'm looking forward to. This is literally you're you're li this is literally the first day home. Uh, so uh, aside from doing this, today was a day that I'm doing nothing, and I am doing it well. Well, uh, thank you for taking carving some time out of that precious nothing to do this chat, John. Uh, this has been such a treat. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. You can find John Scalzi on Twitter as Scalzi or at his website, whatever.scalzi.com. If you're in the mood for some middlebrow science fiction that's just plain fun, you can't miss the Kaiju Preservation Society. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. 
If you enjoyed this interview, consider leaving us a review online. It only takes a minute of your time and helps others to find the show. Plus, it's guaranteed to make my day. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.